All right, if you have your Bible, I want to encourage you to turn to Genesis chapter 39 tonight. We are in a pretty exciting part of Joseph's story. Uh, last week, uh, remember uh, Moses, in writing this, took a break from telling about Joseph, and he told us that, that rather uh, strange story about Judah and Tamar. We talked about that last week. It seemed like a uh, kind of a side uh, journey that we took, and yet there was an important reason for it, because Judah will later become a very major player in Joseph's life, and we'll get to that in, eventually. But here we get back to Joseph. Meanwhile, back in Egypt, while, while Joseph, or Judah rather, is doing all his things and messing his family up and God is working through it, uh, we're back in Egypt and Joseph, poor Joseph, is being put through the ringer. And so let me read to you uh, chapter 39 and then we just want to talk tonight basically about how God's grace is sufficient for us in trials. That's the idea tonight. God's grace is sufficient for us in various kinds of trials. Let's read together. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he had made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in his house and in his field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food that he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance, and after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as he spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her or to be with her. But one day, when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house were there in the house, she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that, she had left, uh, that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to me to lie with me. And I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came in to me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, This is the way your servant treated me. His anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph 
and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge, because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. This is God's word. We're talking about God's grace, sufficient for trials. If you look at your bulletin, there are three trials that Joseph is sent through in this part of his story, which, by the way, this part of the story covers several years. So this is condensed down a long time, and that's part of what you have to get in your mind in order to understand the difficulty of what Joseph's going through. He's got three trials. First of all, he's got slavery, and he sees God's blessing in it. Secondly, he's got temptation. And he recognizes God's faithfulness in it, and he has to display faithfulness himself. And then lastly, he's in prison, and he has to see and find God's steadfast love while he's in prison. So we're going to look at the three trials of of Joseph and think a little bit about how God's grace was sufficient for him and for us. First of all, he has blessing in slavery. Um, Slavery is not the kind of situation that you would associate with the word success. Everybody agree? Uh, Somebody define slavery for us. What is slavery? It's not just employment, right? Loss of rights. rights. A complete um, giving over of yourself to the authority of another. Um, You lose your ability to make your own decisions about basic life things because you belong to the master. In fact, the the, the passage here describes Joseph that way numerous times. Uh, One of the most uh, vivid is where it describes him in verse 2 as being in the house of his Egyptian master. It kind of piles on three ways of describing what slavery is. He's in somebody else's house, not his own. He doesn't own one because he's not allowed to own property. He doesn't belong to himself. He has a master, and his master is a foreigner who really doesn't care too much for his kind, right, by nature. He's an Egyptian. Egyptians do not really respect Hebrews, uh, especially not at this point. And so Joseph is in like a triple sense underneath the, the heavy weight of bad circumstances. And yet, notice how often I counted six times or at, or at least five, where the word success is used to describe Joseph in slavery in those first six verses. And when you read it, you're like, huh? Successful slavery? Do what? Can the two go together? Um, after all, think about success for a minute. It isn't success something everybody wants, and, but, but it's really hard to define, actually, when you think about it. Uh, Stacy and I used to live for years on Success Avenue in Lakeland, and uh, every time we'd give our address to anybody, they would always you know, either snicker or they'd be like, ooh, that must be a fancy place. These, these are people you know, from not, here, not from here, and we would say, we're from, we live on Success Avenue, and they would say, ooh, you must be, you must be well off. I'm like, no, not really, but, you know, the, na- the street's just called that. You, you see, even the word success has this strange power over us, but everybody seems to define it differently. 
And yet, as I'm thinking about it, the different explanations or the different definitions of what success entails all seem to have kind of a common thread. They all are very circumstantial. For example, some people uh, define success maybe in the terms that like a Forbes magazine would define it. Business, money, possessions. Uh, Other people define it the way like a Sports Illustrated would define it, right? Fame, skill, glory, people clapping and cheering your name. Other people would define it the way a Vogue magazine would define it. Beauty, uh, you're turning heads. Everybody wants to be you. Uh, Even the the great Christmas movie, It's a Wonderful Life, is like this little meditation on success, right? George Bailey is having a crisis, and it's Christmas Eve, and he's thinking about committing suicide because he feels like now that he's lost his position and his business and his money, he feels like his life's a failure. The opposite of success. Because he, just like all the rest of the world, has success defined in material or in circumstantial terms. Of course, if you've seen the movie, it takes a guardian angel to come alongside and demonstrate to George that success is found not so much in circumstances as in character and in the way that his character has touched other people's lives, which is kind of what you get at in this passage. The reason the Bible is able to say Joseph in slavery, not owning himself but being owned by another person, the reason why he's able to be called successful even in that is because God does not define success circumstantially. He defines it in terms of spiritual and spiritually given character. Let's look carefully at how it's described. The first uh, way that it's described is probably the most important. Verse 2, look at it. The Lord was what? With Joseph. And he became Successful. The number one thing the Bible says about success is that it is derived, true success is derived from the presence of God with a person. Success is not circumstantial, success is spiritual. The the definition of success in the Bible, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked or walks not in the way of sinners, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And the Lord is with him and what, what, no matter what season it is, he bears fruit for God because God is with him. This is what Joseph was. God was with him even in his dire situation. And the Lord's presence with him turned him into the kind of man that God saw as successful. Now look down at your passage again. And I want you to find what are some of the ways that uh, it describes Joseph's success. What, what, what does success entail for Joseph? favor from Potiphar. Potiphar fell in love with him. Potiphar became his biggest fan. What else? He was given more and more responsibility. Now, think about this. Who do you give more responsibility to? Someone you trust. Someone who has proven that they're good at handling responsibility, right? In fact, what else does it say? How successful had Joseph become in this regard? Everything, right? Every single thing in Potiphar's house became Joseph's responsibility. It was like Joseph became uh, Potiphar's deputy. It says the only thing Potiphar actually thought about 
was his own food. Everything else he had handed over to Joseph. That's how much he trusted him. What does that say about success in God's eyes? What makes a successful person? In God's eyes. It's not the same as Forbes magazine, because he's a slave. Forbes magazine would not feature a slave on the cover. It's not the same as Sports Illustrated. It's not the same as Vogue. character right a man who has learned how to be a responsible servant of others now that's amazing think about it God's grace was sufficient for Joseph in slavery because God gave him his presence for Joseph to walk every day with the presence of God turned him into the kind of man who learned how to be faithful with the responsibilities God gave him, even when those responsibilities could be demeaning. When they weren't the responsibilities he would have picked for himself, and yet he accepted it, and he did the best he could do with it. That was recognized by those who were around him. In fact, it even says that even Potiphar saw that Joseph's success was different than everybody else's. Potiphar had to admit, God must be with Joseph. I've never seen a slave act with this much dignity, self-respect, and respect for others. God must be with him. And so let me give him more. This is a theme that comes up throughout the Bible. I mean, you think about uh, Joseph's in this situation. So was Moses. Uh, David would later be a man like this. Um, Daniel, who would also be under the, uh, in the service of a foreign king, he also had this same thing. And in each one of those cases, it tells us what made the difference in the man or the woman, because Esther was another one like this who was a woman. What made the difference in the man or the woman is God was with them. They learned how to walk with God. They learned how to recognize. Like in Esther's case, for such a time as this, Esther, she learned how to live by for such a time as this. God is with me. God has some plan. I'm where I need to be because God put me here. Therefore, let me get, take what has been entrusted to me and do the most with it I possibly can. That's success. You're not going to get a write-up in the paper if you become successful in those terms. But who cares? Because the Lord is with you. Don't you see? Uh, I, I think this is a, a, something that we have to continually take our hearts through again and again. Uh, it, it's, it's really hard for us, even as Christians, not to be completely entrapped in the outward comforts and the outward sort of um, trappings of success that everybody else around us seems to be chasing. It's very hard to get away from that. I think the only way to get away from that is to, to drill within our hearts constantly that having God with us is just more important than anything else. If we don't believe that, then we're, you know, we're not going to make it very far. Here's a thought experiment for you, and this is one that challenged me this week. What would you trade the presence of God for? Let me just give you the scenario. What if someone came and said, hey, I'm going to give you $3 billion, but here's the catch. You can never read your Bible again. You can never pray again. You can never come to church again. You can never meditate on God's word again. You have to completely renounce your relationship to God. 
Yeah, that's right. Yeah, exactly. We've already kind of gone over that, right? Yeah, exactly. That's an extreme example. But yeah, Clint's right. We, we fancy ourselves thinking, oh, well, I know what I would do. Get behind me, Satan. I will not take your $3 billion. And yet, how do we spend our Sundays? Uh, God is available to us. Are we taking him up on his offer? Or are we finding other better offers? Um, think about it. You know, if, if someone said, maybe money is not your thing. The world will praise your name. All you have to do is renounce that you're a Christian. You'll be the most famous person on earth. I mean, all of us have something, right, that would draw us. And this was a great thought experiment for me this week to think, what, what is it that would make my heart sort of catch it a little bit and say, Ooh, I don't know, would I, would I trade? I think there's danger here. I think we need constant reminders. The presence of God is more important than simply anything else. Right? And the more we taste the presence of God, the more we'll realize that that's true. The less we taste it, the less we'll be prone, you know, prone to realizing that it's true. All right, so there's God's uh, blessing in the midst of slavery. Well, secondly, Joseph not only has slavery to contend with, but he's got temptation. Anybody ever had temptation? Um, I, I, I kind of went back and forth. Do we call this temptation or do we call it pressure? That is what Potiphar's wife, we'll call her Potiphera. We're not given a name, but Potiphar's wife, Potiphera, what she brings to Joseph. I mean, it's kind of tempting, you know, and you could kind of see the seductive aspect of it. But honestly, the more I read it, the more I thought, it's not that seductive anyway. I mean, verse 7, for example, is not a very good pickup line. Not very seductive. Lie with me, right? That sounds more like a command from on high, right? Lie with me. Which makes sense given the power differential between Potiphar's wife and Joseph. I mean, Joseph has to take orders from Potiphar and his wife. And she's giving an order. It's speculation, but maybe she's done this before. Maybe this is something she does with the people within her house. We don't know. She seems very comfortable doing it right here. She seems to have no qualms about it. It tells us in verse 6b, kind of uh, tantalizingly, very similar to what it had said about Joseph's grandmother and great-grandmother, uh, Sarah and Rebecca, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. Or as the Jewish uh, English translation puts it, he was well built and good looking, which I like that better. He was well built and good looking. And uh, Potiphar's wife responds to that with all that she seems to know how to respond to that with demand. I know what I want, give it to me now. How does Joseph respond? It's actually a master class in dealing with temptation, or if you want to call it pressure, you can call it pressure. Call it whatever you want. How does he deal with this very difficult situation? Call it between a rock and a hard place. Somebody summarize it. How does he deal with it? Says no. Says no. It starts there, right? Just no. And he's a hard no. He's not a, yeah, well, I would, but, you know. He's a hard no. He's pointing to the ultimate authority that this pressure or temptation would actually Yes. That's the, that is a big deal, isn't it? Um, when, when a pilot goes, is flying in pitch black darkness, 
or a pilot's going through a storm, how do they know where, if they're going right? The instruments. Actually, I think today they mostly rely on the instruments for just about everything, but especially when they can't see, they have to rely on the instruments completely. This, this is showing us that Joseph has had in his heart furnished great instruments for handling temptation. What he says there in verse 8 and 9 is powerful. He says to Potiphar's wife, no, I will not do that. I cannot do that. First, it's wrong to my master. It's, it's a betrayal of trust to him. But most importantly, as Ben has pointed out, most importantly, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? There is a world of instruction in that line for us in every temptation and every pressure we face. What if Joseph had said, I'm sorry, Potiphar, but I don't want to get caught. I hate prison food. I don't want to go to jail. I would, but you know. Or what if he had just said, well, I'm sorry, I'm not attracted to you. Not my type. What if he had given any other reason? Talk to me about it. Right. Then what he's saying is that given the right circumstances, I would do it. But I'm not going to in this case because it's just not my thing, right? Aren't we like that with temptation a lot? We toy with it. We play with it. We say, yeah, yeah, this is nice. But, you know, it really would shame me if I did it. It really would, if I got caught, I would lose everything. I would lose my wife. I would lose my husband. I would, you know, we reason with ourselves on so many lower level things. And in doing that, we do not deliver the death blow to sin that it needs. Sin needs a death blow. It doesn't need a patting on the back and a maybe next time. It needs a hoof. And that hoof can only come from the Lord God is watching me. The Lord God has been good to me. I will not cross him. It is not right in his eyes for me to do this. Therefore, I don't want to do it. In fact, a Christian is someone whose heart has changed. Before you're a Christian, I mean, non-Christians refuse to commit sin all the time for lesser reasons. Praise God, actually. Uh, Isn't it a good thing that there are a lot of people that don't kill people because they don't want to go to jail? Amen. We we love that. It's great that not as many people commit adultery because they don't want to be embarrassed. Praise the Lord that they don't do that. But as a Christian, you got a bigger reason. In fact, you got such a reason not to do those things that it actually keeps a watch on your thought life and not just your physical life. Because your reason is God. Your reason is his honor. Your reason is his glory. We rejoice that God restrains evil in people by making them afraid of various consequences. But what we really need to be asking for is, God, make my heart in line with yours. So that I think most of all about what you want, about what pleases you. That's where Joseph is. I mean, this goes back to what we said a moment ago. God was with Joseph and he became a successful man. And this is what a successful man, spiritually speaking, looks like. And the same thing would be true of a woman. A successful woman would be somebody who references everything back to the Lord. His character, his work, his will. 
My reason for not doing this or my reason for doing it is him. And I'm thinking it through. I'm thinking it through. I'm not just living by the seat of my pants, but I'm learning how to think through my life in the presence of God. That's a big deal. Had Joseph not dialed in the instruments of his heart before Potiphar started coming and calling, do you think he would have been ready when she did? Mm -mm. You've made this mistake before, as have I. Thinking that, you know, I'll be ready when I get there. Neglecting, neglecting, neglecting God day by day by day, and then all of a sudden you're in the pressure cooker and you fold immediately. No wonder we fold. These are things that have to be set before you take off into the storm. They can't be set while you're there. And Joseph, over time, is learning how to walk with God and it's setting his instruments towards the Lord so that he would learn to resist temptation well. Uh, the Bible uh, affirms this in many other places, you know, like uh, Jesus says it this way. This is very stark, but in, in Mark, in Matthew chapter 5, he says, If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. And, okay, y'all know that part. Why, what reason does he give? Amen. Yeah, translation. It's better to be with God blind than to be without God with perfect vision. And Jesus is modeling again this same heart. The instrument set. It is simply better to be with God than anything else. Proverbs 7 also, if you've never read that, I would encourage you to go read it. It's, it's a powerful uh, treatment of this same issue where the father tells the son, Son, when the temptation sounds sweet, when it smells sweet, when it looks sweet, don't be deceived. What looks like it leads to life really leads down into hell, leads down into death. Make your decision based on eternal realities and not just temporary pleasure. I mean, Joseph knew this. Joseph understood. A few moments of pleasure with Potiphar are nothing compared to being with God. The consequences of not going with Potiphar are nothing compared to being with God, which is actually more what ends up happening because she will not give up. She kept on saying it day after day, day after day, verse 10. But he would not listen to her. It got to be the, to the point where he wouldn't even be with her. Like he kind of separated himself from her as best he could. But one day, verse 11, when he couldn't get away, she grabbed a hold of him and he ran. And she concocted the story. Uh, now blaming Joseph for doing to her what she had been doing to Joseph. She was the one that had been badgering him. And now she is crying out to her husband and to the fellow servants, that he had been the one badgering her, which leads, of course, to Joseph's prison sentence. And yet, I mean, Joseph had to have understood this might have happened. I mean, you've got to get it. I mean, this is not just, again, it's not just seduction here. This is actual, like, power differential. So J Joseph has got to be thinking, if I say no, there's got to be some consequence. I mean, something bad's going to happen to me. Joseph knew, if I have the power to say no, I will say no. 
as long as I have the power, because whatever consequence might happen circumstantially, it's nothing compared to losing God and his presence. Very powerful. That leads us to our third thing. Joseph is thrown into prison, and guess what? Even in prison, God comes to Joseph. Now, slavery, prison, which one's worse? (laughs) It's kind of a dumb question, right? They're both terrible. They're both unspeakably bad. But if we had to sort of parse it out, perhaps prison. Uh, After all, Joseph had a pretty good life in Potiphar's house, at least in this case. Uh, He was raised up to the top. I mean, you you could imagine he enjoyed lots of privileges. And yet when he was sunk down underneath the house, which is where it says the prison was, up under the house, um, he's, he's in the lowest spot he can go in the whole kingdom of Egypt. And yet, what does it say in verse 21? Somebody look at it. But the Lord was with him. Once again, the Lord was with him. It goes on to say he became again successful. Verse 23, the Lord was with him, and whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Again, we should hear success in terms of God's definition and not ours. Because he's still a prisoner. So he's obviously not knocking it out of the park on human terms. But in God's point of view, he becomes successful because he becomes a faithful servant even down under the house, even in jail. He starts serving the other prisoners. So much so that they start to kind of put him in charge of the whole prison. The warden's like, hey, I can go take a nap. And Joseph's got it, so go take it. Because the Lord is obviously with Joseph. Now notice, I want you to notice one little detail that's different here than, than the one about slavery. Uh, the reason why I asked you which one's worse is because here the, the writer Moses is describing God's presence with Joseph in a slightly different way, in stronger terms. Verse 21, what does it add that it didn't say about Joseph when he was in slavery? Not that it wasn't true, but it's adding it here to show you even more emphasis. God showed him steadfast love. Now, Showed. The word showed is to stretch out over. I mean, literally, God pitched a tent of love over Joseph. God stretched his love out over Joseph and surrounded him with it. Steadfast love. Uh, if if, If you don't know any Hebrew word, know this one. Chesed. Everybody say chesed. Yeah, it's a great word. It's, it's all over the Bible. It's steadfast love. Uh, that's what the way the ESV puts it. The NIV puts it kindness. The King James puts it mercy. Uh, the point, that I think, come, becomes clear. We don't even know how to say it in English fully because it's a, it's a word packed with so much meaning. Chesed means covenant love. Covenant love. Uh, everybody recognizes you can love different things differently, right? You love your dog. You love your business partner, you love your classmate, you love your wife, and those are very different loves. C.S. Lewis talked about this in his book, Four Loves, where he he took the Greek language and he talked about the four different Greek words for love and described the different ins and outs, uh, culminating in the great kind of love, agape, which is the New Testament version of the Old Testament, chesed. It's covenant commitment. I am going to love you till the wheels fall off and beyond. That's what it is. Here it says, when Joseph made it into jail, into prison, 
the Lord was with him and pitched over him a tent of chesed. And there's a picture there, really, of what God does for each of his children in trouble. No matter what the trouble is, this is what he does. He meets us, he pitches a tent for us, he sets a table for us, and he dines with us on the sweet fruits of Hesed. Often, isn't it true, that in our losses, in our pains, in our worries and anxieties and fears, that the love of God comes through to us sweeter than in the good times. Now, I get that that's not always true. A lot of times, it takes a while for that to come around. Sometimes there's the initial sort of trauma of an event that makes it just where you can't process much of anything. But once you move past that, often there is a sweet presence of God that, that the Christian tastes, even in the darkest of moments, right? Uh, listen to the way uh, one writer puts it. And I think it's really, actually, the reason I want to read this is I, I thought about all of y'all. Um, there's many folks in our church right now going through various difficult things. Some of them are listed in this little paragraph. Here's what he says. Perhaps you can relate to this. You may be dealing with a difficult and challenging situation in your life. You are experiencing painful trials that have radically changed your prospects for the future. And maybe even have condemned you to a life you have not chosen for yourself and would not have chosen for yourself. What is God doing? Perhaps he will use your suffering to bring you into contact with someone who needs to see the Lord at work. It may be a fellow patient or a nurse or a doctor at the cancer clinic or perhaps a neighbor or friend who is watching you endure your trial. Maybe there is someone near you who needs to see what the Lord is with us looks like in the midst of suffering, pain, and loss. Maybe. It is one thing to declare the Lord is with us when there isn't a cloud in your sky. That's easy. It is quite another to be able to confess that the Lord is with us in the valley of deep shadow. And yet, look at Joseph, okay? People have gone before us and they've done this, okay? We're not alone. People have gone before us. Joseph was in Jail, falsely accused, after having tasted great success. And yet, when God pitched the tent of his hesed love over him, everybody saw what it was like to say, the Lord is with us in a dark place. And they looked at Joseph, and they could not help but elevate him. They could not help but seek to imitate him and to be like him and to be blessed by him. And in the same way that it says earlier that Potiphar's house became blessed through Joseph, the prison becomes a blessed place. In fact, next week we're going to look at the story of two of Pharaoh's servants who are thrown into jail. And they're in a bad pickle, uh, especially one of them. Because one of them is guilty of the thing that they're accused of. The other one's innocent. But he just threw them both in jail just to figure it out. You know, Pharaoh's rights, I guess. And Joseph is called upon to bless both men. We're going to look at that next week. The way he uses and redeems a time in prison to help and serve another person under the direction of God. 
But y'all, it's very important, I think, just tonight to notice success is different for us as Christians. It looks different. It's not going to necessarily mean your bank account's getting bigger, not smaller. It's not going to necessarily mean the clean bill of health that you want. It's not going to necessarily mean that you're never going to lose someone or, or something. It doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to get considered successful by the world. But what it does mean is that everywhere you go, the tent of Hesed will be pitched over you. It will surround you. God's commitment to love you began in eternity. Before the world was made, God said, I love that one. I'm going to send my son to redeem that one. He or she is mine. That love was shown in time as Jesus came, our Emmanuel, and he suffered with us. He suffered with us, Jesus did, to show that God loves us. And he's going to love us all the way till the end, into eternity. That is a tent of Hesed pitched over us. And no matter what the circumstances are, whether it's sunshiny, the skies are severe clear, as they say in the aviation world, or whether it is dark and stormy and deep under the house of Pharaoh in the prison, nothing changes the tent of love that God pitches over his people. Nothing. Let me end by, by reading to you this beautiful expression of it. In case you don't believe me, believe Paul. He's better than me. Amen? <laughs> and he says this. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Can we ever get kicked out of the tent of Hesed? Shall tribulation kick us out? Shall distress Shall persecution, shall famine, how about nakedness, how about danger, how about sword? No, no. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor pharaohs, nor potiphers, nor potiphers nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. Chesed. The tent. Isn't that good? It's what we need. You know, uh, Joseph, <laughs> man, I, I always felt sorry for Joseph. This week, I, I think I stopped feeling sorry for Joseph as I read it more closely. And I realized, man, having God's presence and having his love pitched over you is just simply better than anything else. Don't feel sorry for people who have the Lord, even though they may be in dire circumstances. Pray with them that they might know what they have in the Lord and rejoice in it. But don't feel like God is ripping them off. He's giving them treasure. That's powerful. I don't believe that half the time. So, you know, I have to admit, I just struggle with that. Especially when it's myself in a difficult time. I'm like, woo, I don't know about this. I sure would like better circumstances. But God says, no. You got me. My grace is sufficient in trial. My grace is sufficient in weakness. Let me pitch my tent of love over you. 
and let's dine together in the presence of your enemies. Amen.